Good evening. So, we seem to be in a state of chaos, don't we? And our nation faces the greatest peacetime crisis that we have ever seen for hundreds of years. So it is good that we know we can stand firm on the foundations of Jesus and his scripture, isn't it? Can I have the thing up, please? Okay. So, it is, it is easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a camel than a needle to go through something or other. It's something like that, isn't it? Um, I've come to the conclusion that it is much easier to preach in the morning than the evening because I know you know more than I do. And particularly when it's a parable that we all know well and we pretty well know what it means. So how on earth do I come up with something revolutionarily new <clears throat> and get something really amazing out of it. And the answer is, I don't think I'm going to. So, you know, actually, I've only got a couple of points to make. Um, but I think that's okay, because, you know, no matter how good the preacher is, the sad reality is, when we're listening, we hardly remember any of it anyway, do we? We only remember a couple of bits. So hopefully you'll remember the couple of bits. So I'm going to focus on a couple of key points. Um, but I am going to get political and maybe a bit controversial. Yeah. And, you know, people say that the church and politics shouldn't mix, don't they? And the answer to that is fairly simple, absolute rubbish. And just look at Jesus, and he certainly got political. I just won't get party political. Um, and I may cover one or two things that maybe you don't normally hear in a church. Um, and I'm gonna, on the way, I'm going to burst or bust a couple of myths at the same time. So, parables. I, I have to say, I have a bit of a problem with parables. Because um, some of them are complicated, some of them are easy, lots of them are making the same point. And I think, if I wrote the Bible, I would have made it much clearer and much easier to understand. Um, the trouble is, it just wouldn't be any good. And uh, it wouldn't be a bestseller, but I'll let you into a little secret. I have actually written a book um, a few years ago, and it was called Kirsty's Secret, and it was an international bestseller. Okay, I made up the international bestseller bit, but I did write this book. And if I'd written the Bible, I would have sold the same number of copies as I did for my book. Absolutely zero. But after 2,000 years, the Bible still is the bestseller, isn't there? Isn't it? So maybe with these parables, maybe God was right. So, what is a parable? Um, now, I, I, I'm sure you will appreciate that if preachers use the original Greek, they get more bonus points. So I'm going to use a bit of Greek here. So the word parable comes from the Greek word parabol or paraboli. That's, that's all I know. <laughs> that is my that is sole knowledge of Greek. And it literally means putting things side by side. So a parable is a story or an illustration. But the key thing is, why on earth did Jesus talk in parables or riddles? Maybe he knew that in 2018, 19 years' time, a particular church would be running a, service, a ser series of sermons 
and they would have a lot of material to fill, so we created all these parables so we could talk about them. Or maybe it was to make us stop and think. But why didn't he just come out with it? You know, why didn't he make it easy? And if he did, would we take any notice? So sometimes we need something that's a bit more dramatic to grab our attention. Now, I'm a man, and because I'm a man, my ability to follow the most basic set of instructions is fairly limited. And most of the time I get away with it. You know, I'm not interested in reading directions. I just want to go straight to the end and sort it. Most of the time I get away with it. Sometimes it gets me into terrible trouble. Say, for example, I have discovered that when you hit certain ages, um, there are particular NHS interventions that apply. And one of these involved an enema. And I don't worry, I won't go into the graphic details. But uh, um, So, I, I was sent this particular thing. And uh, I had a quick look, and I thought, well, I'm now a great expert on, on the enemas, so that's okay. I didn't particularly read the instructions. Um, what I did take notice of was that it was a particular time and a particular day. So, due time and day arrives, and I'm ready, uh, and I thought, I had this brainwave. I thought, this is bound to taste horrible, so I'm going to add some Ribena to it. And I'm ready, all ready to do this. And just at the last moment, the directions caught my eye and I saw these little diagrams and I thought, maybe I've got this wrong. <coughs> maybe you're not supposed to drink these things and actually doing it in the middle of the family kitchen is probably not the best idea. So I get into trouble. But sometimes we have to get into the detail. Jesus, of course... Um, talks in hyperbole, doesn't he? And sometimes when he does that, what he says on the surface appears ridiculous. And one of the reasons, I think, is he's got a good sense of humour. At least, I hope he has. Otherwise, I am in serious trouble. And so he uses these parables to sort of go over the top and, and grab our attention. And to do that, it must mean that the message is important. So there's something he wants to say. He wants to challenge us to see and think in a different way. And he uses the situations around him, doesn't he? And there's a real lesson for us there. You know, when we are talking about our faith, we can use the things that we see around us. So we start from where people are. So we don't start with something really hypothetical and deep and meaningful over here. Just start from where they are and move from there to the important bits. And that's exactly what Jesus did with this parable. So in verse 25, he says, Then Jesus said to the disciples... Um, so let's look at the context here, because at the start of that, there's a really important word, which is the word then. So clearly, it's relating back to what he's just said. It's not in isolation. So we have to look at that as well. So as Rona read, the rich man has asked Jesus what good deeds he has to do to get eternal life. And in verse 17, Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. So, if you want to enter the kingdom, keep the commands. Commandments. And the man said he kept them all. So, he was pretty deluded, maybe. And then Jesus says, um, well, give everything you've got to the poor. And the man goes away very sad because he's very rich. So, the context, second part of the context, is that uh, society in those days 
assumed that if you were wealthy, you were blessed. So the more wealthy you were, the more the Lord blessed you. So that means that if you were rich, you're first in line to eternal life. So get more money and you'll be there even quicker. And of course, fundamentally wrong. But we still see that today, don't we? We we hear people preach about the prosperity gospel. Um, And it's, in my view, utter rubbish. And I think it's totally dangerous. So in this parable, Jesus is giving his disciples and us a major electric shock. So he's trying to turn our thinking and society's thinking upside down. And he is constantly doing that. So in 23 and 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So he's trying to say it's not about how much you have in life. That's not important. And it is totally countercultural. Still is, isn't it? You know, we measure someone's importance by their status or how much money and things like that. Now, we are two-faced, I think, about wealth. Um, I think we're fascinated by it. So with all this chaos at the moment um, in Britain... (coughs) Do you know what the headline was in Hello magazine last week? (laughs) I was just doing my research. (laughs) So Hello magazine, front page of Hello, was Holly Willoughby's pink floral dress is the prettiest this morning has ever seen. So we love the celebrity status. We love that wealth, that power, that sense of prosperity. And sometimes we crave it. Uh, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to go to for a meeting at Buckingham Palace. And uh, you sort of you go through the gate and you walk across the courtyard and knock on the door. Queen, Al- no, she doesn't. No. Um, anyway, you, you do knock on the door and they let you in. And I was shown up to this room. And just to give you the context, the room, if you're facing the palace, the room was on the first floor, right-hand side, right in the corner, overlooking the parade ground. And I got there uh, early, um, so um, I was the only one there. So I was standing in the room, and I couldn't help myself. So you, you just have to do it. So you have to go to the window, and you, you do the royal wave. And you just, you just have to. It's, just, it's kind of the law, isn't it? Um, and there's probably some camera in there, and they think, oh, it's the 50th person who's done that today or something. But... And then on the way out, got a bit more carried away, and I was walking out with this very high-ranking civil servant from the Treasury. And uh, I I turned to her and said, as we're walking across, do you mind carrying my bag? Because that would make me look really important. It didn't go down well. (laughs) But we still crave it. We still crave wealth and money. So so much of society is built on on money. Um, Just recently, Taunton Dean Borough Council... Um, did um, a review of crime and antisocial behaviour. And it was a bit like a, a select committee, if you see those on television. So you, various witnesses, so to speak, have to go and give evidence. And, and I did that on behalf of street pastors. And there were real issues to resolve, so I, I don't want to sort of pretend that there aren't. But the more I looked at what they were doing, the more I thought, A, they've written this report before they speak to anybody. And actually... They just want the problem to go away. 
So in the town centre, we have a problem with rust sleepers and beggars, and they just want that our way. They don't want it solved. They just want it gone. So if it goes somewhere else, that's okay, because that's now not our problem. And it's a problem because it's stopping people spending money in our shops. So it's all about money. There was nothing about compassion in that. So sometimes we crave this money. But also we can be jealous of it. Um, Because I think, you know, we we love looking at lives of the rich and famous, but we particularly love it when they fall from grace. So we can say, ha ha, there we go. So you weren't as good as you thought you were, were you? We love all that stuff. Uh, And it's wrong. So I think we are a bit hypocritical. But in this parable, Jesus seems to be anti-rich. And it's not the only example. Um, So in, you'll know this verse, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 verse 10, it says money is the root of all evil. Doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And there is a context. So if you go back a couple of words, uh, verses to, to verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and, 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 a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Um, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So again, it, it suggests that anti-rich, that uh, scripture is anti-rich. So let's bust that one. Jesus is not anti-rich. It's not what he's saying. He is warning about the dangers of wealth, but there is nothing wrong with wealth in itself. And in fact, we need rich people. And we need rich organisations. So let me give you just a couple of examples. I don't know how well you can see that, but this is the population growth of the world over time. And so it's fairly flat for thousands and thousands of years until very very recently, and suddenly it goes through the roof. Does that make sense? So if you look at it another way, here's how long it took. This is each chart chunk here is one billion people. And you can see for the first, the population of the world, the first billion, took a thousand years. The next billion, 124. The next 33. And then suddenly we're down to somewhere 15, 18 years as we go through time. So every, every sort of 15 years or so, we are adding a billion people to the planet. How are they going to eat? And how are they going to drink? Because that is a dramatic change in population. If you look at this, this just happens to be water. Um, and it, it breaks down where water is on the planet. And only a very, very tiny amount of water is suitable for us to drink or suitable for us to grow things with. So as the planet, as the um, population gets bigger and bigger, quicker and quicker, the one thing that stays the same is the size of the planet. So we're not suddenly adding a load more water for us to drink. So we have to find different ways of doing it, you know, different ways of finding ways to, to create food and to create water. So we actually need wealth to invest 
to enable the world to create new things to enable us to cope with this. Another example. Income tax. So the top 1% of earners pay just over a quarter of the total amount of income tax. And the top 10% of earners pay 60% of the total income tax. So a small number of people are actually funding a large proportion of the public services we we enjoy. So we need wealthy people, wealthy organisations. We need rich philanthropists um, because they give away a lot of money. So Ian just yesterday was telling me that 40 of the world's top 100 billionaires are Christians. And they give billions of pounds away. And who are the best people to reach rich people with the gospel? Probably other rich people. So the problem is not that some are, that people are rich. The problem, of course, is the imbalance. Um, and that itself is another talk, isn't it? Because there is a massive imbalance between the rich and the poor, and that is fundamentally wrong, but that's another story. But we, also, we ought to remember that we are rich. Every single one of us here today is rich. So if 1.9 billion of the world's population live on less than £2.40 a day, compared to, to us, they are poor, we are rich. So this parable is not about rich or not rich. It's your attitude towards it. Um, Second myth. You probably know that the eye of the needle was a small door in the walls of Jerusalem, right? Wrong. There's no such door. And if there was... Think about that, because here's Jesus saying it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. If the eye of the needle was literally a door, we would be debating, well, okay, maybe a small camel could get through. What if that camel really crouched down? What about a baby camel? Would a baby camel get through? It would lose its point, wouldn't it? Jesus is talking about an ordinary camel going through an ordinary needle. Nothing to do with a gate. And the reality is, it can't, can it? It's impossible. And that's the point. Come back to verse 24. Easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he seems to be saying it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. So that means there are no rich people in heaven or no rich people go to heaven. But hang on a minute, I've just said we're all rich. So it can't literally mean that. It must be more, mustn't it? There must be more to it. What he is talking about is the distractions of wealth. Because it is very easy to fall into a trap of putting our faith in the material things. It's just as easy for us as it is anybody else, rather than in God. You know, we we end up having quite a few things, and we think we've got it made, we're okay, we can relax. 
we sort of got there. And earthly riches can put a kind of lead lining around our hearts, which separates us from God and separates us from others. So we can end up focusing on wealth. And when we do that, then we want to protect it. And we want to keep it. Maybe we want some more. And it stops us from being the person the Lord wants us to be. So it can be harder. There is no doubt that it can be harder if we are rich, truly rich. And it's certainly easier to follow Jesus if we have nothing to lose. And that's maybe why the growth of the Christian church is so much greater in the developing world than it is in the Western developed world. So, if it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, it's also impossible for a poor person to enter the kingdom of God. Or to be precise, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God simply based on how much wealth we do or don't have. So there are Christians who happen to be rich and there are Christians who happen to be poor. But it's not their wealth that defines them. So the key point that Jesus is making in his usual hyperbolic style is we can't buy our way to heaven. We can't earn our way to the kingdom. Because Jesus is the answer to his own parable, isn't he? He's the way. We can't earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift through the grace of God. It's free. Jesus has paid the price already. It's undeserved. But he gives it anyway to anyone and everyone who accepts it. There is nothing we can do to increase our chances of getting to heaven other than accepting the gift. And the more we truly appreciate the scale of that gift, the greater we experience the love that the Lord wants to give us. But the trouble is, we know all this stuff already, don't we? And that's why it's so hard preaching on something like this, because we already know it. But do we? Do we really know it? We know it in our heads, but do we know it in our hearts? Are we still trying to earn our place with Jesus? It's impossible to earn it on merit, but do we still try? Do we think we're a good person and that's all it takes? Or do we think the opposite? Actually, we think we're unworthy. But Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He knows we're worth it. You know the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42? You've got Martha, she's doing stuff, and she gets very cross because Mary isn't helping. And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Now, actually, we need to be Mary's and Martha's at different times, don't we? But is our motivation right? Are we someone who does things out of love? Or do we do things out of the need to be needed? And do we place our value on that? Do we place our security in being needed rather than in Jesus? Because is our focus, if we're honest, truly honest, 
on Jesus or is it on ourselves? Do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? Guess number two. <laughs> it's do not worry. Do not worry. The gift is there. We accept the gift. Do not worry. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to keep re-accepting it in that sense. So maybe that's the challenge tonight. We can't earn it. It's a gift. But is the Lord speaking to you on this tonight? Is he saying, maybe I'm challenging some of your motives. Are you doing this for me? Or are you doing it to still try and prove that you're worth it? So do we need to give up the rest of ourselves to totally accept the gift? The last verse in this passage is one of the best. uh, Verse 26. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. And it is. So why do we try? But with God, all things are possible. Amen. Amen.